This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! From the Embassy Row Studios in the crap part of Soho, it's the Men in Blazers podcast. <sighs> We're back! Ugh. Davo. I'm quite tired. You are tired. You had one of those nights, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I had one of those nights. Early call for Good Morning Football. Emmy nominated Good Morning Football. Is it not one Emmys yet? Tonight. Went early in the morning, 5am call for Good Morning Football. Got home at 10, set the alarm, thought, okay, 10 till 4, 10 to 4, 6 hours, that'll be good. 10.30, still awake, convinced myself, 5 and a half hours, still good. Panic. When does panic set in? Around 11. Yeah. When I go to my medicine cabinet thinking, I need five hours, and I go for the melatonin, and there's no melatonin there. 11.30, have a, go and have a glass of wine, watch a bit of Billions. 11.30. Oh, I've just finished that. The problem is it, it winds me up. I'm only on episode nine. Don't tell me what happens. They all and die. Then, <laughs> and then, and then uh, so four and a half hours to go till my alarm's going to sound. I get out of bed. I go down to Dwayne Reed, yep. or as my father calls it, Duan Reade. Yes. And that's, I... That's uh, like a chemist for those yeah. of you who don't live in New York City. And I get down to... Uh, I go and get some melatonin, come back, take it, wait for it to set in. I think around 1.30, I finally dozed off and then woke up before my alarm. So I am destroyed. And yet, Rod, so happy to be here, staring across the table at you about Oh, you look great, yeah. which is uh, half the battle in That's life, I think. Only, as my mother used to say, it's more important to look good than to feel good. Yeah. And those of you listening still on the pod, <laughs> you may hear as bonus, Andy Cohen's show is taping in the background. Yeah, it is. So when we're not pleasing you, yeah. you may hear a little bit of uh, what happens live. Tune into that. Get a twofer. I want to give a big shout out to at Matt, at Chitty, who tweeted... <laughs> Six minutes into the Men in Blazers podcast, and they haven't touched on football yet. Unlistenable. Yeah. Hi, Matt. Wow. Well, I can't believe that we. Uh, I can't believe we've ever got to football no, before about say, twenty minutes into the podcast. Seven years we've been doing this podcast, and I'm very proud that we have not spent a single minute thoughtfully talking about football, Matt. Yeah, sentiently. Uh, yes, in any uh, true fashion, and we're not about to start now, mate, but I do want to ask you, Dave, yep. after a dark weekend mm-hmm. for lovers of the light and the force of good, <laughs> in which it looks like Chelsea Football Club have tied up their second title in three years, all that winning, so much winning, too much winning, I want to ask you, do you enjoy the winning? What emotions does winning conjure for you? Can I take the second part of that question uh, first? Can we just take the first part about the absence of light, the forces of darkness? When there is actual darkness in the world and when there is actual darkness in this country, the ascribing of your own darkness onto Chelsea Football Club is, I say this with love, Somewhat pathetic. Really? There, even, though, are... even though all darkness in the world has to have a source somewhere, the original, like the, the, the source of a river. And I can ascribe it okay, all back Rod, to Chelsea football. To Chelsea Club. are the most evil, evil entity oh, in the world. I'm gonna Winning take versus that losing. <laughs> Chelsea. <laughs> I know, as, though, as though that, because I said it in that way, makes it true. <laughs> but that is what evil is, Roger. So, uh, look, I mean, I think the point that this came up, we had a conversation about winning and losing in sport because you uh, talked to me about your frustration 
once again, all of this stuff comes from your own frustration at watching your <laughs> beloved Everton Football Club, which I love the fact that you love Everton Football Club and you should love your team. But it doesn't say any more about you when your team are winning or when they're losing. It doesn't make you a different person. Fans who follow football teams and they have their chest pumped out when their teams are winning as though it says something about them. I'm no better a person if Chelsea win the Premier League than if they lose. I'm no stronger. I'm no tougher. You can be just as weak and... and uh, and are just useless if you support the New England Patriots or Chelsea Toody. Football Club. Yeah, you can be you can be useless. So I find it ridiculous that who you are is somehow impacted by how your team you played. What emotions does it make you feel? Your point make... watching Everton was yeah. that you don't know how to watch when they are both losing and not trying hard and finishing seventh in the Premier League. Your whole equilibrium of supporting a plucky a plucky, trying-hard team that, yeah. are, that are always attempting to win. Yeah. You don't know where it leaves you when they're not trying to win anymore. And I said to you, surely the only point of professional sport is winning. Because without winning, professional sport is just professional athletes being paid enormous amounts of money just to run around pointlessly. So winning has to be the goal of all professional sport for me. And hence, I like winning. I followed Chelsea for years when they lost. I followed them when they got relegated. I followed them through all those things. But winning is the point of all professional sport, surely. I mean, I, I, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And the reason why I'm asking, I've recently become obsessed with an author, Jim Shepard, fallen into the wormhole of his writing, his short stories, trying to get him onto the pod. He's a remarkable, remarkable writer. And he wrote an essay about his long-suffering fandom of the oft-hapless Minnesota Vikings, in which he asked, and that's why I'm asking you, what does winning feel like? Because I really do not know in any facet, not just Everton, but in life in general. He writes, does a season <laughs> that actually finishes with a victory create a euphoria that matches a devastation you feel after a singular loss? Does the joy of winning last as long as the pain of losing? I think it, for me, it's about... It's, it's equivalent, and it's nothing like the victories or losses of real life or to do with the people you love. It's just, it's just football. Chelsea, I've said to you before, football first, England second, Chelsea third, and all of that is way below any form of real life. Much as we joke that we really only understand football, life is like <laughs> we love football way more than we don't like. We love our families. We love our children. Oh, I wasn't joking. One of us loves our wife. I love your wife more than I love football. The um, you are uh, it's not it's 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 there's no greater thing in winning than the devastation of losing, and it 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 does pretty much disappear for me pretty quickly. But I does must say. does winning feel? I mean, what's it? I'm genuinely into what does winning You've feel? You've been alive when Everton. Uh, this is childish, a role you're playing. Childish, Everton childish. won the first division. It's yeah, no when different. I, when I was about twelve or thirteen, it's no different. That, than that. childish feeling. No different than that. No different than that. Adult winning and childlike winning. Adult winning, the feeling of supporting a team that wins, is childlike by definition. It is a return to all of the other winnings. Yes. They're all kind of connected in your, like, a, like a spinal column. You get yep. reconnected to little Davo, yep. teen Davo, mm -hmm. late 20s Davo. Just suddenly when they win, when they crush Middlesbrough, you get yeah. all these memories suddenly synapse. Well, look, it's why, God, why, do people, why do people jump again? in the air and pump and cheer when they score a goal? That's, some, that's about the playground. That's about the schoolyard. That's about the playing field. It's, it's recreating something from childhood. Sport is about childhood. Let me just clarify. I say the only point of professional sport is winning. I do not feel the same way about amateur sport. I do not feel the same way about recreational sport. There's nothing I enjoy less than going on a tennis court and having 
a game of doubles with people who take it way too seriously. It's like a recreational, amateur, even amateur sport. Even I'd say the Olympic ideal is lost because amateurs aren't just competing for the sheer love of competition, the sheer love of sport. Like but Stevie professional Naismith. sport, the point of professional sport is to win. See, so I, I love listening to you because winning is such a, a, a foreign concept to me as an Everton fan. I've had so few opportunities to savour it recently. It's made me think a lot fundamentally about why we watch Davey. I really have a thought a lot about it this weekend because for me, it isn't about the winning and losing. It's about the struggle. To use another writer's phrase, not a Jim Shepard book, but Mein Kampf, if you will. It's about the process. <laughs> the struggle. dichotomy there. Okay. The, the journey of the yeah. Tom Davises, the DeAndre Yedlins, the Christian Pulisics, the Peter Crouches, the growth, the regression, the waxing, the waning, the How occasional winning. How did Crouch make that list? Just because. <laughs> okay. What a life. I adore that man. I do. We talked about it before, how in, famously in a program when they ask you what your favourite meal is, your favourite actress, your favourite movie, and then the last question for Peter Crouch, they asked him, what would you be uh, if you weren't a professional footballer? And he just answered straight up, a virgin. That's how Peter Crouch makes that list. Life. <laughs> He's lived it in all of its wonder and all of its surreal ridiculousness. I mean, so it's all that littered in, the waxing, the waning, all that stuff. I mean, the winning actually means so little to me in the bigger scheme of things. And funny enough, when it does, Simon Hallett, the GFOP, who brought Plymouth Argyle, mighty, mighty pilgrims, he wrote me an email when they, uh, when they won promotion this year. And he, he added a quote that captures how I actually do feel in times of glory. It's a line... Uh, from an article written by my old mate, the novelist Howard Jacobson, who came on this podcast. And he wrote, he thinks about death a lot, particularly when he is happy. And to me, that's football in 11 words, David. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, from space, that, uh, whoever that listener was who tweeted, he was really unhappy that we didn't speak about yeah. football for six minutes. He's going to really, there's no way he's listening now. <laughs> We're but, trying to please you so but, hard, whatever but, your name is. But aliens from space looking yeah. down at us. They're saying, let's not invade, or, reverse, or let's reverse. Not even, let's not even come from space. Let's look yeah. at a, let's look at a, uh, let's, let's look at a young kid growing up in a, you know, in challenging conditions in, in perhaps on the outskirts of a town in India. Looks at us living in uh, Manhattan. Hello, friend. Part of the 1%, Rog. You have a lovely apartment in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I've got a lovely apartment in Little Italy. We work in the media. We're on television. <laughs> We're English in America. We're leaving the dream. We are the top 1%. We are winning by every definition of that word in the human struggle in life, in terms of the century in which we were born, in terms of the places, the families we were born into. We are no different. It's not like, oh, Davo, you're a winner, and I'm really one of the great losers. I've never experienced the joy of winning in your life. It's all about <laughs> your frame of mind. It's just your frame of mind. It's no different that you support Everton. You would support Everton even if they won five championships in a row, and it's entirely possible that Everton will bounce back and go and do it. In fact, it's what you should aspire to, to support a team that win. I just think there's a little bit of you that quite likes Everton not being that good. You find it somewhat comforting to support a team that aren't really, really trying to win the Premier League at all. I want to say to our little Indian listener, <laughs> hello, friend. I'd also like to say to the, uh, to the aliens, Nanu. <laughs> yeah. Also, please... Please don't attack us. Don't attack us. There's other parts of the they're world. They're not Cossack aliens. Well, yeah, the Cossacks. They're not Cossack, Cossack aliens. Cossacks. <laughs> but I just love that framework that you've just given us. And it reminds me of our old friend Arlo White. 
yeah. when he used to come on our serious show uh-huh. and he'd talk about the weekend ahead. He'd go, first I'm going to drive down to Stoke, then I have to go up to Newcastle and I end the weekend at Bournemouth on Monday. And we'd be like, wow, you're going all up and down the country. That's so hard. Three games in three days. And he'd say that his dad always said to him, when he complained about how hard his work is, how far he has to travel, what he has to do, what does his dad say? Do you remember? No, absolutely no memory. His dad would say, it's not exactly going down the coal mines, is it? <laughs> no, that's very, very true. Which I guess ultimately is your point. But talking about the coal mines, talking about, talking about my own death. <laughs> the Men in Blazers show was on yesterday. Yeah. With Kevin Bacon. Yeah, we all died a little. What <laughs> Particularly Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Anyway, I realised afterwards, what great initials. I can't think of a set of initials with, with better bloodstock than KB. Oh, it's so funny, because on today's TV show, Kyle Brandt on Good Morning Football, KB, we yeah. had Kevin Burkhart, the, uh, the Fox NFL commentator. He was on another KB. He's, me- he's mediocre K- by the KB initial. No, KB is strong. KB5. Yeah, KB is strong. Kyle Beckerman, the greatest KB of all time. KDB. Second best KB. KDB, yeah. <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne, we had Kevin De Bacon on. What a mensch. After being with us, he's now six degrees separated from, from Kyle Beckerman, for instance. And I made the mistake of mentioning to him, and I feel sorry if you're listening. I bet you Kevin Bacon was listening to this, and then he tuned in, and then he got annoyed three minutes in. They're not talking about football. This is terrible. Sorry for failing you again, Kevin Bacon. But I did make the mistake of mentioning to Kevin Bacon. I said when he walked into the panic room, I said, oh. God, thank you, Kevin. You're a childhood hero of mine. And he looked at me, and you could just tell that he was instantly trying to carbon date me <laughs> and work out how it was possible with his head of hair that, like, he looked at me as if, how, how could I have been a childhood hero of yours? He, he looked at me as if I was suddenly 15 to 17 <laughs> years older than him. I want to apologise, KB. Oh, Lovely that, guy, though. Yeah, no, it was, a, uh, it was epic television. A uh, very good job on the editing there, JW. And we're on again this Friday. How is that possible? Yeah. With Hank Azaria, mm-hmm. I hope. I'd say we're 70 30. We've got Hank coming on. That's about as sure as, that's about as, sure as we've ever it's been of a sure. guest coming up. 70 Chief 30. Wiggum. Chief Wiggum. Oh, that's a lock, Rog. Yeah, yeah, Tiesto every week says yeah. he's coming. But I think Hank Azaria is coming. We're not even that sure about Carl Martino when he comes on. <laughs> By the way, we should talk about Carl Martino's hair at some point because it, it is, it, it is. There's a lot of hair right now on Carl Martino. That's winning. Yeah, talking He's about got winning. An updo right now. <sighs> We've got Chief Wiggum. Yeah, Chelsea probably will have just won the title mm-hmm. on Friday. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be super horny, and I cannot, I cannot wait for that one. Six o'clock. I'll have right. forgotten about it, it by Monday, Roger. Mm? I'll have forgotten about it by Monday. About Chelsea winning the title? Yeah, probably. If we have to talk about it, we'll talk about it. Yeah, but it's fleeting. It doesn't see. last a long the time. The only person I know who has the same approach to football as you, where winning, pff, no biggie, mm. fleeting, it's Roman Abramovich. That's <laughs> not true. They cut to him with his team almost clinching the title on Monday in a game which we'll talk about in his box. Uh-huh. God, he couldn't have looked more bored. Yeah, and I think he has moments when that's just his look. He really does care. Having met the guy, he really does. I was amazed at how much he actually does care about the team. Yeah, relieved. <laughs> I'm, perhaps the word is rather than amazed, relieved about how much he cares. When your about mind's the team. on killing, it's hard to let any part of oh, it sorry, wander I to win. Evil. Um, okay, uh, Rog. <laughs> yeah, you're off to DC. I am Washington yeah. GFOP's warning. Like aliens attacking the Cossacks, I'm going to uh-huh. descend upon your city. Uh, Tuesday, May 23rd, mm-hmm. to support the U.S. Soccer Foundation at their fifth annual Capital Soccer Classic. Classic, yeah. classic. It's an event at RFK, 
which features again, this sounds awful, between two teams of Democrats and Republicans uh-huh. fighting each other on the football pitch. Yeah. Uh, alongside such elite football talent as the mighty Rob Stone. I can't wait to uh-huh. be with him. Heather, I still think he should have run for president. He plays both ways. Heather Mitts yeah. and Ben Olsen, uh-huh. uh, who's also an artist. Google it. Ben Olsen, the great DC coach. We, uh-huh. J-Dubs and I have been looking at his art online. Mm-hmm. I wish I could buy some. It's magnificent. Mm-hmm. Admission is free to this event. Yeah. I've been assured there's a beer tent. Yeah. So GFOPs, please come. Spend the evening hanging out with me. Have a Guinness two or three. Uh, I got the date wrong in our Raven newsletter, which is mm-hmm. classic, because uh, I'm a schmuck. It's the 23rd of May, not the 24th, but come down uh, and hang out with Rob Stone, if not me. It's going to be magnificent. Amazing, Rod. You do so much for charity. For charity. For charity. Well, I think it's a fantastic Rod, you're organization. A, you're such a good person. You do so much for charity. The U.S. Soccer Foundation promotes the game amongst um, low-income kids across the country. It's amazing. Good. Love good work for charity. 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 Okay, we've got a packed show, Roger. We're going to hop in the George Michael sports machine for Chikau and head back to Friday to relive a 72-hour span that looks like it officially let the air out of the title race, Rog. We recap Sunday's bout between the ubiquitously beefing Arsene Wenger and Jose Mourinho. And we check with the medical examiner about Middlesbrough's cause of Premier League death. Turns oh. out it's the space between Bradley Guzan's legs, Rod. It's a large, <laughs> large, gaping well, chasm. Okay, to That's the football, Rog. Oh, yeah, let me open this, David. It's time to crack open a Guinness. Pour. That's a pour it, David. Yeah. I've got to ask this. Uh-huh. Does anyone want top four football this season, apart from Chelsea and Tottenham? The way Liverpool, United, Arsenal have laboured over the past couple of weeks. Mm. As if they've all looked at Leicester last season, mm-hmm. Chelsea this, and seen the common denominator not as N'Golo Kante, mm-hmm. but as a lack of Champions League distraction. Yeah. And they're all hell-bent on making that their reality. No one seems to want Champions League football, David. I think it could be Everton's fault for not pushing them harder <laughs> from below. Uh, anyway, cheers, uh, Roger. We are anywhere between 34 and 36, 38 of the way through the Premier League season. I think that reduces, but it doesn't really matter anymore. We sit on the precipice of a denouement Many months in the making. At start, last Friday, West Ham won Tottenham nil at the London Stadium where Spurs had the opportunity to close the gap on league leaders Chelsea to a single point, Rog, but a 65th minute Manuel Lanzini cracker saw Tottenham's noble nine-game winning streak come to a halt in a classic case of London on London violence. It is harder for London teams to win the Premier League, Rog, because all other London teams want to do them. It's so true. Quick word before we delve into this game. What an odd experience Friday night football is. I mean, watching Premier League football when I'm not in my pyjamas feels completely bonkers and crazy, disorienting. See, I picture you in your pyjamas on Friday night, always. (laughs) You do? Yeah. I'm in my Sabbath finery, David. It's also odd to drink a first Guinness in the afternoon and not at 7am in the morning. Yeah. But this game, it went down very much how I expected, actually, the Arsenal-North London derby to go. One extremely over-motivated side encouraged by the opportunity to play spoiler and clip a high-flying local rival's wings. I mean, Spurs went to play some Jewish Sabbath ball, freed from that albatross St. Totteringham's Day. They moved to that deadened nerve that is West Ham's London Stadium, a venue which almost for Tottenham, it's like a cautionary tale. West Ham's own dreams of progress and closing the gap with the big boys has been sucked up into that vacuum, yeah, throwing them point. mockingly in their face. God, Spurs what? don't like large stadium football. Yeah. They don't like large stadium football. That alone, in the medium term, may do them. But 
I couldn't believe this game, Dave. I've seen the struggle for West Ham, abject mediocrity, but they were way up for this. Yes. What, what happened? Well, number one, London on London. London is so tribal, Rog. You can get beaten up for wearing the wrong outfit at the wrong time. I have many street. times. You now cross between North London and East London. North London is as foreign to people in East London as Turkey or North Korea. Or it's just it's a different world, and they loathe their neighbours. People in London hate people from other parts of London. They really, really properly do. And so Tottenham coming in here thinking they're going to go and do for the title. By the way, West Ham hate Chelsea just as much, if not more, than they hate Tottenham. But this is like you go down the pub, you're with your mates. There are Tottenham fans, there are West Ham fans, there are Arsenal fans, there are Chelsea fans. They're your mates, the ones you don't beat up. You still want to properly beat them every single time, Rog. I mean, this whole game, it reminded me of Steve Coogan's old quote about the English. If you give an English person the straight-up choice between their own success and your failure, they'll choose your failure every single time. And so West Ham just threw themselves into this game, steaming into tackles with the ferocity of haters, trying to catch Spurs repeatedly on the break and just generally some of the commitment and sharpened edge for the 90 minutes that they've lacked the entire campaign. I mean, to be fair, there were some challenges going in from both sides. And I oh, think that's the other thing that happened. There were meeting. some challenges from both sides early. That got the crowd going uh, in a London derby on a Friday night. And so then it just all got a bit mm, got a bit spiky. And to your point, third London derby on the trot for Spurs, yeah. a brutal gauntlet that would wear any team down. And Spurs tried to foray... Without general menace, they really scouted in the final third without ever really exposing West Ham. Sat so deep in a five, the Hammers, that they were rarely troubled. Amazingly, this Spurs team, they've stopped doing first half goals. They scored three times before half-time at Watford on New Year's Day and then haven't scored again in the first 45 on the road since then. I kept thinking they'd come out in the second half and turn it up, and they did. Ericsson blew his chance, Son shot wide, from a position that he normally finds a reason to unfurl goal celebration handshakes. And that just general wastefulness came back to haunt them. I mean, this is a scrappy, scrappy, scrappy goal. It ends up at the feet of Lanzini. A suspected handball in there somewhere. Lanzini, you know, lashes it into the back of the <gasps> net. And Tottenham were stunned, Rog. Yeah, I mean, They had not read this script. God, first time they conceded in 503 minutes their vaunted defence. Cat Stevens used to say, first cut is the deepest. They walked back to that centre circle. They were shell-shocked. I mean, West Ham were meant to be just like an easy fight, a boxer, journeyman, who'd be knocked out in the fifth or sixth round. They weren't meant to hit back, to mm. do so with power. The camera, when it cut from Delhi to Ericsson to Kane, all of them just looked around like they'd been sucker-punched. These were the faces of men who appeared to be out on their feet, Davo. At DRZAS21 tweeted us and said, is this how it ends? Not with a bang, but with a bubble pop. <laughs> yeah, but what I did like about that shot, Rog, is these were not the faces of guys who were playing for, with nothing to lose, thinking, oh, you know, we might get lucky and we might win the league. I think these are guys who, who Pochettino, to his credit, had convinced you are going to chase down Chelsea and you are going to win the Premier League. And I really respect that. I respect the thrill of victory. I respect the agony of defeat. I respect how hard it hit them. It was like watching the end of Rogue One with Jin and Cassie and hugging each other on the beach in the face of that blast wave that had just been dispatched by the Death Star. Yeah, that was lovely. And that's what made it feel so humanly affecting, David. Mm. I, I mean, I couldn't shake that loss deep into the night. And Spurs aren't even my team. I don't follow them. I don't support them. 
But you're right, they represented so much that we admire in life, so much that you want your kids to represent. Ambition, collectivity, tenacity, organisation, belief, confidence, endeavour. Uh, I mean, to meditate on that Spurs loss to a large degree was to, to mourn the values of my own youth, which I never really followed anyway. They're going to end this season trophyless after a week which began on such a high after crushing the spirits of Arsenal and cancelling St. Totteringham's Day. And now those hopes have just been tattered, ridiculed, savage. Title race is difficult, but it's not over, said an exhausted Pochettino wistfully post-game. I said the English press really murdered Spurs at the end of that. It, uh, you know, in the kind of, if it's May, it must be the return of that so Spurs. The English Sky host, Dave, I don't know if you saw this, Rachel Riley, she said, she said that was a proper bottle job. But it wasn't, though, was it? Well, no. I mean, I think that bottling is one of the things that, you know, we've talked about this before, that normal people who don't play professional sport ascribe choking and bottling to professional athletes who are there at the top level because they simply do not bottle and they do not choke. You know, eventually, this was an incredibly hard task for Tottenham to chase down Chelsea. This league, very rare that this that the league has two such good football teams competing for the title and eventually the law of averages what makes this league the greatest league in the world is everybody can beat you on any given day it's why I haven't rested on my laurels with this title at any point I, I know it's Tottenham, been annoying Tottenham won nine games in a row Rod nine victories Amazing. in a row Unbelievable. towards the end of the season when it's the hardest time of the season to go and win games that is phenomenal 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 it is unlikely hardly bottling it it's hardly bottling it hardly bottling it and frankly if Chelsea had been caught and they'd you know managed to, you know, lose the game to Southampton at home. If they go to West Bromwich Alvin, they don't win uh, on Friday night. If they Guzzi sort of had had the game of his life. Have a little yeah, life. draw on the final life. day against Sunderland. They wouldn't have bottled it either. These are two really, really phenomenal football teams winning absurd amounts of points in a highly competitive league towards the end of the season. So respect, Tottenham. I couldn't agree more. I mean, they've played some of the most glorious football most consistently this season to me. Liverpool were a joy to watch for the first quarter of the campaign. Chelsea have been admirable in their just resolute tenacity and their transition from winners to losers to winners again, which is from a life perspective truly unbelievable. We'll talk about them in a minute. But this Spurs team have truly caught the eye and full football that has made the nipples tingle over and over again. Can they continue it? We've had this conversation every week. I will say Spurs have a different pace structure to the big teams around them. They have a different depth of squad as a result. They have overachieved. They've overachieved this season. Not underachieved, they've overachieved. However, they do seem to fall apart when they're playing in new, massive, roomy, soulless stadiums in London, which is going to make that move to Wembley next season truly goat-worthy. I wonder how many players, after the defeat at West Ham, would have sat in that locker room and draw on the conclusion, because I want them to stay together. I want them to compete again like you do. We want yeah. great units. We want great competition. We want this Pochettino experiment to go next level. But I wonder how many of the individual players just took the conclusion that I need to move if I'm going to win trophies, that they can't give their all and fall short a third time just emotionally or within their careers rationally. I mean, to go through and wilt at the last twice on the run, like making it all the way, I was chatting to J-Dubs about it, it's like, he said it's like ch getting all the way to Soda Popinski and Mike Tyson's punch-out, only to be totally obliterated every time. It's a rare sporting pain, and Buffalo Bills fans yeah. probably know it better than anyone if they're alive 
in the early 90s. I, I, I salute Tottenham now. Chelsea 3, Middlesbrough 0, Rod. Spurs lost meant Chelsea had the opportunity to move within one win of the title. If they killed off cannon fodder uh, Middlesbrough Monday night at Stamford Bridge. Nevertheless, they just come off uh, the result against Man City. They did so in comfortable fashion in the end, thanks to goals from Diego Costa, Marcus Alonso and Nemanja Matic. Typical Chelsea goals coming from all different shapes and sizes, all different positions of the field. Every single one of the goals, Rod, was unified in that it went through Mr. Bradley Guzan Esquire's legs. You might have pumped him up a little bit too much pre-game on the Twitter, Rog. Oh, it was just magical realism in my realised retrospectively. This was a one-sided men-against-boys game that made that great gingy pugilist Canelo. His whipping of Chavez Jr. seem incredibly competitive in comparison. God, the whole time I just kept thinking about poor Spurs fans just praying that some kind of a footballing Golovkin could glove up and leap into the ring. <laughs> I, I, I'll admit, at kickoff, yeah, I, you could say that I'd work myself into some kind of a frenzy. You got a little bit overexcited. I, had, I believed that the thin, bald line spelled G-U-Z-A-N, Mr. Bradley Guzan, would be the latest in a long line of American underdog heroes, Rocky Balboa, Randy Quaid in Independence Day, oh, and the great Gamecock, known as Bijou's. I've whipped myself into this false sense of belief and positive enthusiasm, Davo. So I've got to say, my God, what followed over the next 90 minutes was just... I couldn't have been more debilitated if I'd just really defecated in my own pants and I had think, to sit in it. I think 45 seconds in, Pedro took the ball on the edge of the opposing penalty area, started running <laughs> the opposite direction up the pitch, and I knew it was over for Middlesbrough when Pedro is in that mood. By the way, the, the, the adjectives and verbs used to describe Pedro, they're a verb, scamper. We don't use scamper very often. Scampering is a, is a verb ascribed to Pedro more than any other footballer in uh, the football universe. Oh, so I those eyebrows are just <laughs> so finely precision plucked. I want to know if he's got some kind of a Tweezerman endorsement deal. Yeah. Oh, but this game, David, Chelsea just came in waves. They pinged the ball from right to left. Yeah, and Golo Kante uh, seems to have tweaked his thigh. Yeah. And so Sesk comes in. And yeah. Sesk is just pinging it around. Just pinging everywhere. it over and over through the middle, down the flanks, like a football inversion of diarrhea that Middlesbrough just couldn't stop. I mean, it was like watching an FA Cup game between Chelsea and a non-league minnow trying to hold on 10 minutes at a time. And then that Hoover Dam, known as Guzzi Guzan, he broke. Yeah, he broke. He had made a fairly remarkable save early in the game from an almost identical move, a pass from uh, Sesk, a save from Alonso. I'm not sure how much Brad Guzan knew about it. Oh, he, he intended he to knew. save the ball by rebounding it onto the ground so it would hit the crossbar on the way up. If he would have angles, do you know how boom, you know, patterns. Do you know how you know if he did it intentionally, that save? If he tried to do it intentionally, the ball would have gone through his legs into <laughs> the goal. See, I see. I see. Uh, yeah, the ball comes in from Cesc. Takes a minor deflection, but I think they still gave him the assist. Fabio. And, uh, yeah. and, and Diego. Uh, the original Dan Buster. Oh, Diego just slots it through his leg. Diego is back 1-0, and uh, there was really no doubt from Diego's that Diego's 20th goal of the season. Not bad for a man who's in the process of consciously uncoupling. Mm. 34th minute, you turn oh, to that me. Grin, Rog, that little grin on your face. And you said it was a grimace. <laughs> <laughs> you said to me, yeah. I love Diego, he's good for football. He is. You said to me, I think Chelsea have just cracked the best way to score against Brad Guzan. Yeah, you hit it straight at him. You don't you don't go for the angles. You don't try and put it in the side of the net. No. Nope. Just try and hit it straight through him. Yeah. 
And by I the want, second half, he had learned to close his legs. Yep, Alonso just slipped it through our tenacious Gamecocks legs again mm. from an acute angle. And I started to worry that Chelsea might just end Guzan before he gets his dream move that back to That was an amazing goal Atlanta. because that wasn't even going in. He hit it at Guzan, even though that was not on frame to hit the to target. Do, uh, not on frame to hit the target and it went in off He still place. had a lot of work to do, he Brad. He made he it look easy. Second half, more of the same. Brad Guzan was megged by Matic after another pass by Sesk. Team leading, this is astonishing, 11th assist of the season by Sesk, Dave. A remarkable because he's played half the minutes of almost every other kind of first-tier starter. But for Guzan, a hat-trick of Megs, five-hole times three, technically 15-hole. Even Courtney Love thinks that's a lot of hole, too much hole. You can always say this about Brad Guzan, Dave. At least he's consistent, right? Yeah, he is. He was wonderfully consistent in this game. <laughs> he did also, to his credit, he did make a couple of outstanding saves as well, despite the three on the loss. And he was not the only problem uh, for Middlesbrough. Oh, the inability was... to press Sesk, the inability for anybody to track back and deal with Alonso and deal with the wingbacks. It's not like Chelsea haven't been playing this, this formation for pretty much the entire season. But I did start to mourn the fact that Brad Guzan could have had done one or two things. He could either have mastered the kind of Patrick Wah butterfly technique, which would have kept the scoreline goalless. Yeah. Alternatively, I did start to think as the second half dragged on a bit and the punishment was brutal, I did start to think, if only Brad Guzan had an enormous penis. <laughs> How do you know he doesn't? If, well, <laughs> Could be tucking it in. Would have been nil-nil, mate. <laughs> if he was enormously well endowed, like third leg big. Uh-huh. Really packing. Yeah. He'd be unplayable, that man. Yeah. Unplayable. No, very true. These are the regrets I have. I'll say, in this game, he may have looked to goalkeeping what Sean Spicer is to spin. But in seriousness, Brad Guzan is one of the loveliest blokes you will ever find in football. He's And his story where he's ground his way to the elite level, waiting his time forever to be behind Shea Given at Villa and Tim Howard at the international level watching him gain his starting role and experience relegation two seasons on the trot on two terrible, terrible teams, mm-hmm. Aston Villa and now Middlesbrough, has just been humanly challenging. Having said that, I've heard rumours that in his contract with MLS, he has necessitated the whole league institute promotion and relegation <laughs> finally, solely so that he can make it three years on the run. Hat-trick. <laughs> At Melville Ghost, does this make Guzan the inverse and Golo Kante? Mm. Is that you, David? Yeah, maybe. Right, player of the year. How much longer are we going to talk about Bradley Guzan? Is that really the only takeaway from this Chelsea Middlesbrough Can game? I say one more thing about yeah, it? Yeah, you can. Go ahead. And now his watch has ended. And we'll move on to Arsenal Man U. And with it, and this is sad, tears, the great bald American goalkeeping tradition has become extinct. Not extinct, Roger. It's just, it's just temporarily suspended. You Another bald will come through. Dodos never come back, did they? <laughs> we had Casey Keller, Brad Friedel. Yeah. Marcus Hanneman, Tim mm. Howard, and the best of all, arguably, Bradley Guzan, who's the last of the Mohicans. Jonathan Klinsman, shave your hair off, mate. Shave your hair off now if you're listening. Middlesbrough, relegated, tepid, curious, unromantic, unimaginative, brief stay in the Premier League in the relegation zone since March, and they've done almost nothing to care about getting out of there. One of the dullest, most accepting of their doom relegation experience I've seen. Uh, relegated for a fourth time, tying a world record uh, with Crystal Palace, Norwich City and Ineptitude Sunderland. And your Chelsea, Dave, your mighty Chelsea, 
may tie up the Premier League before Spurs play again if they beat Pulis's West Brom this Friday. I'd like yeah. to say Mazeltov. Yeah, Tony I predicted Pease. them winning this from the beginning. So um, You did, but that was mainly to bait me, let's face it. <laughs> you were just trolling <laughs> me from you. the beginning of it's the about season. about Antonio Conte. I'd, I'd watched him in Italy. Yeah. I'd watched him with Italy. Mm-hmm. I was amazed by this human being and just the amount of commitment and passion and determination and tactical acumen that oozes out of his pores. And I was quite fascinated by what he could do. But it's an amazing achievement to be so close to winning their second league title in three years, their second Vardy party in three years, David. It's a remarkable, uh, I think it's a remarkable achievement what they've been thinking. Look, as you said earlier, that they came from, what, 10th place last season? Um, a, a terrible uh, season, the 2015-16 season for Chelsea. What Antonio Conte has managed to do, and I think, look, with respect to N'Golo Kante, uh, who has seemed to win MVP by uh, every measure at Chelsea, by the Premier League players, by the writers, everybody seems to have chosen him. I think... This title is Antonio Conte's title, assuming it comes. What he has done, just the energy, his, his ability oh. to motivate that team, both through weeks of training, through their setbacks in the season and readjust. But what he does during the game, it is just joyous to watch. And whatever you think about Chelsea, if you agree with Rog, they're the most evil team in the world. I've got to tell you, Antonio Conte just eases class. He is, he is a credit to this league and to the game of football. What he did to the Middlesbrough fans Amazing. after the game, that was beautiful. He if stayed he... behind and clapped the supporters of Middlesbrough whose team had just been relegated. Yeah. What a mensch. Yeah. What a mensch to do that. And what he said in the post game is because where he comes from, he does not see travelling fans travel to go and see in a the team. Italian football culture. The Italian football culture. And he thinks it's unique to England where these 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 fans will travel, go and see their team, they'll cheer them on through the whole time, they'll stay and clap their team. And he was moved by it. And you really believe him. This was not a a sort of a, a, a camera op. This was not a photo op. This was something genuine that he was moved by it and he wanted to go and think about them. And his moment of joy, he wanted to go and think about And of his the moment of victory. Out. Yes. Wanted to go and think about uh, the fans who were struggling, who'd made that enormously long journey uh, from the northeast down to London. <sighs> what he's forged at Chelsea is something quite remarkable. I think there is this sort of common, almost a platitude of, oh, Chelsea, they've won this title on, on, on defence. Because this is how we know how to talk about Chelsea under Mourinho's Chelsea talk about defence. Yes, there was a tactical move to three at the back uh, rather than the back four. So you can think this was all about defence. Well, Chelsea actually have conceded more goals than Tottenham have conceded goals. They have scored more goals than everybody else. What that move did is it unlocked the entire team. Chelsea are as close to playing total football as any team I've ever seen in the English Premier League. Everyone on that team can score. Everyone on that team can pass. Everyone... Uh, sort of has skill. Everyone seems to be released to do creative things and it is quite astounding to watch. What I would say is, looking forward to Chelsea, where they can go, I think this team can get better and I think they can get better because they can defend better. It is fascinating. Another Italian manager wins a league. Ranieri last season, Ancelotti with Chelsea in 2010, Mancini at Manchester City in 2012. I mean, Italian football culture just thinks and breathes tactics at a different level than other global football cultures right now. And it sits very well at Chelsea. Remember the, the Chelsea Renaissance, for those who, who don't know Chelsea's history back in the 1990s, it was really Gianluca Vialli and then Gianfranco Zola who sort of reinvigorated uh, Chelsea with respect to Ruud Hullet. Uh, and then Ranieri, who came in as a very successful manager at Chelsea as well. And it sits very, very well 
at Chelsea, this Italian football culture. Paolo Bandini wrote a great article uh, about the Italian Football Federation's acclaimed technical centre, Covaciano, the finishing school for its managers that I would encourage anyone to look up and read. Uh, for Bleacher Report, it talks about how Italian managers are thought to think, teach, lead and manage in just the most sophisticated read. He writes about the thesis, the, uh, the PhD thesis, that um, Conte wrote while he was there, and it's absolutely fascinating. Chelsea, though, in the medium term, David, Conte's comments pre-game were interesting. He said, the other teams, the other big teams around Chelsea are, quote, more evolved than Chelsea in that they are already prepared to play for the Champions League with 25 or 26 players in a way that his small squadded Chelsea team are not. Thus, even in victory, Stamford Bridge has got to be braced for a massive summer of upheaval despite the glory. You know, Conte is going to go heavy in the summer transfer market. He's going to attempt to identify an entirely new spine to the side, an additive spine. Yeah. Does that concern you? Well, look, he's, he, he, of course, he does have a large squad, but he's barely rotated his team. He's had very few injuries to deal with this season. And I think he's going to need, especially assuming this is a club that can go and deep in several competitions, if he has that ambition, he's going to need way more players and way more stars um, uh, to go and make it. Looks like Diego Costa, hence your grin earlier, is on his way out to China, seems likely. Seems likely. Um, you know, lots of rumours about Cesc Fabregas on the way out, probably, though he's got that many assists with that little uh, time on the pitch. I think he wants to go and start somewhere. Um, so it's going to be tough to hold that team together, just as it's going to be tough for Tottenham. Um, but this is a team that can play better football and that can go forward. We are building, Conte declared, when you start to build, it's very difficult to carry on winning. In my words, when you build, you do, you unsettle the culture. But if anyone can see confidence rather than insecurity as new bodies arrive in the locker room, it is Antonio Conte, pound for pound, the greatest warrior spirit in world football right now. So Mazeltov to him. Mazeltov to you, David. Thank you, Rog, but it doesn't make me any better a person or any more successful a person because my team won some football matches in London. Arsenal 2, Man United 0. Arsenal ends Manchester United's 25-game unbeaten draw-laden run and Arsene gets over on his rival, finally Jose Mourinho, for the first time ever in the Premier League. That's amazing. A fortuitous Granite Xhaka goal and a thumping Danny Welbeck <sighs> header resuscitate Arsenal's top four hopes, moving them within six points of City with their game in hand. United, meanwhile, trail City by four points. Both have played 35 games. Is it normally a heavyweight must-see battle, this Arsenal United, Wenger Mourinho, the handshake psychodrama, the tie fights, the scorn, the loathing. But with both teams, this is astonishing. Meeting for the first time since 1977, when they were both outside of the top four. It all was kind of like a celebrity rehab version of everything. It was like, said on the show, it was like watching Dustin Diamond and Carrot Top arm wrestle. If two specialists in failure fall in an empty forest, does it make the sound? We didn't really get the answer to that because, oh, it's all a bit crap. Mourinho's side lying fifth in the Premier League and the Europa League representing their best chance of reaching next season's Champion League. Uh, they've got a big semi-final this Thursday against Salta Vigo. They rang in eight changes, fielding two little-known players. 19-year-old Congan-born Axel Twanzebe and 87-year-old Wayne Rooney. Oh, Grandpa Wazza. Yeah, Grandpa Wazza. It was a bit it's of my a... dad's age. He is. He's yeah. older than your dad, isn't no, he? No, same age. Oh, I thought your dad... My dad moves a little better. He does. <laughs> he's got more hair. Trev. Well, Combs it over a little, but he's got more. Why wasn't he playing, Jose? 
Oh, it, was a, it was a weird game. Arsenal pressed high up the pitch. United kind of went into Manchester derby, sit-back mode. Caution, first approach, little ambition. Mkhitaryan and Mata scurrying after Arsenal's wing-backs, nullifying any idea of a Mancunian threat. What did you make of Arsenal in this game? Arsenal certainly looked sharper than last time out, Rog, and they looked like they're up for it. It looked like Arsene had sort of motivated his team a little stronger and, and wanted to go and get the victory. He did. I mean, Ramsey briefly shown a glimpse of his former life as a buccaneering celebrity killer. Mm. Alexis and Ozil combining to overload United, really giving Arsenal a sense of what could have been this season. Ozil, all week the English press pointed out that he'd recently re his driveway. Mm-hmm. Interpreted by Emirates criminologist to be the clearest sign yet that he's staying put. He played well. Times even seemed to have a pulse flicking around oh, with menace. Poor Wayne Rooney. That terrible miss when one-on-one against that AARP board member Peter Cech's, um helmet. God, it just reminded me of just the agony when he blew that gift of Isaac Asimov's quote that life is pleasant, death is peaceful, and it's the transition in between that's troublesome. MLS executives, please don't sign him. He's a spent force in the Steven Gerrard DP mould. He's no David Villa. It was heavy-legged end-of-season fair, cried out for a goal, and a surreally stale game. One came from the oddest of places. Yeah, Granite Xhaka. He might have thought it was a tackle, Rog, that it wasn't a shot, <laughs> but it, uh, it, it, it looped in. It hit Ander Herrera, who's been the subject of much comedy recently, Rog, and just like hit him and uh, loops over... David De Gea, who looks to have lost a little bit of a little bit of a spring rod to me, and uh, loops in, goes into the net. Yeah, I don't think that David De Gea was expecting Xhaka to shoot from there. It was like watching the Warriors' opponents give JaVale McGee the open three. Mm. But he did prove he's not just in the side for yellow cards. Ten yellows, two reds this season. Those are his version of assists and goals. But three minutes... 11 seconds later, the Ox, all game long, finding a way at wing-back to live up to his now-long-faded potential on the flank. What ball! Yeah, I know. Amazing, amazing ball. And Welbs, Rog. Welbs, not so good with his feet. Amazing with his head. Yeah. Uh, knocks it in. Yeah, two future West Brom or Sunderland squad members combining <laughs> on that one. And Arsenal, long bullied. Suddenly looked like bullies, Dave. I said on the show it was... It was all like watching Arson's George McFly punch Mourinho's Biff Tannen at the end of Back to the Future. And that was it. The rest of the game just went off the boil. Two ordinary teams playing out the string at the end of the season. Palmy did think after finally beating Mourinho, Dave, after 13 games in the Premier League, Palmy thought Wenger should just retire post-game. Just drop the mic like John Crook getting his lifetime average. I'll never forget this. John Crook got his lifetime average to 300, I think with a single. And he just simply got to first base, grabbed the plate out of the ground, tucked it under his arm, and then walked off the field and retired on the spot. And I'll say, Wenger, with four wins out of five with his three at the back, Tom's a Spadrils fad. Everyone is going to be playing three at the back next season. Yeah, just, just retire, mate. Yeah. I mean, B won't, because beating Southampton this Wednesday could send Arsenal into fifth. That late charge against Stoke, Sunderland and Everton remaining. Arsenal, mm, the fourth place trophy if Manchester City and Liverpool both wobble, which, let's face it, is not the craziest possibility. 
could be back on, David. But what is the point for Arsenal to go into the Champions League? I, I'm saying this on behalf of friends of mine who support Arsenal. What is the point of the fourth place trophy if they go into the Champions League and fail to qualify past the last 16? What so, is the point? It's all about Mein Kampf. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. I'll just send you to the beginning of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, but talking about what the point. Manchester United's fake invincible streak is now ended. What a forgettable stretch of 25 games without a loss that was. It was like watching a legendary power hitter step to the plate with bases loaded and just try and bunt his way onto base over and over again with 12 draws sprinkled in. Mourinho has now put all his eggs, Davo, in that Europa League basket. Mm, I know, and the Ajax are quite useful, Rog. Come on, the Ajax. God, I'd, look, I'd say United are what Arsenal fear becoming in their kind of turbulence of the imagined post-Wenger future. They never look at Chelsea and see how they change managers, probably because both Arsenal and Manchester United have managers who are in total control of every detail at the club, Davo. But it is hard to watch this United. It really is, especially if you've watched them win title after title in the 90s and early 2000s, right, Davo? Yeah, I mean, they're not playing that kind of infectious football, but the league doesn't really allow you to play that kind of football at Man United. You just don't get that much space unless you really, 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 really work for it. Um, I think the way that Man United are going to play football, you saw the way that they beat Chelsea at home. That's going to be the vision for how a Mourinho-Man United team are going to try and play next season. I think they can improve a lot, Rog. I think they can improve a lot, and I think Mourinho will get more out of this side, and they have money to spend in the off-season but they're going to need more out of their squad, more out of their players than they gave in this game. Four Rich. years to the day yesterday that Sir Alex announced his retirement after 26 years and the third manager they've had since then. Mourinho has turned this team into a blunt weapon. I'll say Louis van Gaal would have been crucified for this Arsenal performance uh, and worse. Uh, I was trying to think what United have become if you've watched them all of this time back from the heyday of Sir Alex to now. And The Atlantic had a great article about that old bastard Billy Joel, the piano man who hasn't released a new pop album since 1993. And they asked the question, how does he continue to sell out show after show at Madison Square Garden? And they said it's just based on nostalgia, hooks and muscle memory. That's what United are now, David. They're the footballing version of the piano man. Yeah, the fans want to believe in him. Attack, Rush. attack, attack. Talking of attack, Man City 5, Crystal Palace nil. Pep Guardiola's little bit of toff meets Big Sam's whole lot of rough. And the result was not pretty. David Silva started the scoring in the second minute and effectively ended the game right there. And City are fourth, one point behind Liverpool, but with a game in hand. Palace, meanwhile, not clear of the drop just yet. Yeah, City's attacking came in waves early and often. Bewildered Palace defensive unit buckled in confusion in the face of City's first attack. 114 seconds in, City just unfolded a majestic, purring dominance, much of it revolving around that delicate watercolour artist, David Silva. Mm. When Sterling and Otamendi ran the score up in garbage time, David, the City Fandelarium, which had honestly been a big yawn at the beginning, but five goals in, they were going mental. I was thinking, why can't City do this every game? Hmm. I know. They've got the individual players... They've got the brilliance. They have the talent on that team to go and do this. They have the manager who's won the Champions League. He's won everything in football. They have everything it takes to be a great football team. And yet they have so rarely reached these heights. <sighs> Fix that back line and that goalkeeping position. And by that, I mean get a number one who can use his hands, not just his feet over yeah. the summer. 
buying your overcoat with half the zips. Yes, important. You could challenge. I think the big challenge is Pep's used to preparing meticulously for big games. The Premier League, there's a big game every single week of the season. If only he could play Palace every week. Palace, they've got to remember those players that they still need. Perhaps another point that uh, game looming against Hull Rodg is going to be their season. OK, Liverpool, nil. Southampton, nil, Rodg. Jurgen Klopp's side miss out on an opportunity to move closer to confirming their top four status as spot kick savant James Milner, Rodg, <laughs> saw his 66th-minute penalty clawed away by the enormous, enormous meaty right paw of Fraser Forster. Uh, Liverpool still in third place. Another snooze of a game of one great moment of drama. Southampton, Jurgen Klopp has never beaten them. Managed to lose once and draw this season without Southampton actually managing a shot on target. They simply, and many teams have worked out how to do this against Liverpool, defending two banks of four, forced to play wide, and Liverpool don't know how to break it down. The real highlight of the game was watching Moreno try to flip a water bottle on the Liverpool sideline. Game came to life on the hour mark. Jack Stevens was a judge to have handled out a nothing. Penalty to Liverpool, sure thing, right? Yeah. James Milner, seven out of seven. Not missed since November 2009. And then Southampton just did this astonishing routine. Ward, Prowse, Yoshida both delayed the game to freeze Milner. And then Fraser Forster just loomed over Jay Milnes. Derisively yeah. smudged the penalty spot with his size 15 orthopedic boots. Yeah. How do you put someone as boring as James Milner off, though, David? What do you say? He's to never looked smaller, James Milner. He's, he looked <laughs> tiny standing next to Fraser Forster. It was like my giant remake. Can we also remember that these guys are England teammates and they've travelled together, they've been places together. And Fraser Forster, they are bullying him like the kid wearing glasses on the schoolyard. He was bullied like a common ginger, Rog. Not that we approve of that. What do you say? I was wondering if he like denigrated Theresa May, whispered the, <laughs> the first 12 letters. You think of, he's a Tory? Le- sure he is. Letters of like pi, the numbers of pi, and got one pro- wrong, and oh. it really synapsed his brain. Yeah. At Glowat tweeted us, I think Forster whispered the same thing Bill Murray said to Scarlett Johansson in Lost oh, in Translation. Yeah. At Normam Claret said... I've messed up your sock drawer. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Yep, that would cause obsessive-compulsive James Milner to just synapse. Milner hit his penalty hard, but what a save. It was a pretty good penalty, Roger. It wasn't a terrible penalty. Forster guessed the right way, goes the right way. He He has enormous hands. He does. And John Green tweeted us, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes. And James Milner's penalties shall be saved. Amazing, amazing Can I say stuff, one thing Rod? about Klopp? He spent yeah. the whole game erupting like a geezer on the sideline. Yeah. So perfectly comically cartoonish, people think it's endearing. But if Jose Mourinho did it, what oh, Jurgen Klopp does, would yeah. he not be sent to the stands? He'd either be sent to the stands. He'd certainly be a pariah in the English media for doing that. He should have received a touchline ban just for his excuse. He said after the game, it was the groundsman's fault. Nobody wants to hear it, but the pitch was really dry today. He said that with a straight face. Numbing frustration to the end of this season for Liverpool fans. The team are going to make the fans sweat right into the end. God, the beginning of the season, their heavy metal football was mega death. Right now, it's all a bit limp biscuit. And they got West Ham and Middlesbrough to come. Wow. Okay, Rod, now to two games that will go a long way to deciding the final team to be banished to the championship. Coming into the weekend, Hull 
led Swansea by two points in the battle to see who would stay up. Hull kicked off before the Swans, hosting already relegated Sunderland with the chance to extend their lead to five points and pile on the pressure. But the Tigers failed to capitalise, Rog, falling 2-0 to Billy Jones and Jermaine Defoe goals. And Jordan Pickford save after oh, save. It's like wow. a come and get me reel. What a weekend for English goalkeepers. Oh, as the commentator said at the final whistle, Hull manager Marco Silva's three-year unbeaten home run record comes to an end at the worst possible time. They were playing the pungent, rotting carcass that is Sunderland, whose players, and perhaps the most English thing of all time, when already relegated, seem to be trying for the first time all season. You're going to go down with the Sunderland, sang the oddly delirious travelling Sunderland faithful. Big takeaway, David Moyes could not motivate the troops all season. There's nothing that motivates professional footballers more than desperately trying to get another Premier League job to maintain their salary and lifestyle. Sunderland should have gone managerless the whole season, Dave, and just gone full-on Lord of the Flies. Uh, That meant Swansea would climb out of the drop zone if they beat your beloved Everton, Rog, and Paul Clement's men delivered, winning 1-0 against the Toffees behind a 29th-minute <laughs> Fernando Llorente header. Come on, Bob. God, Llorente posterised Jags like the Tracy McGrady dunk over Sean Bradley. It was like Fraser Forster over James Milner, Rog. It was very eerily, terrifyingly similar. I, I want to apologise to Hull City fans because we Evertonians came to avenge Bob Bradley's death and we failed miserably. The whole game, it was just more deflated than that front Pikachu at the Pokemon World Festival. <laughs> we, uh, uh, this is the thing I said to you. Everton was so unmotivated. Europa League already locked up. They're not going to get higher. They're not going to go lower. I read this week that female dragonflies fake sudden death to avoid male sexual advances. Thought a lot about it because I watched R11 barely break stride for 90 minutes. We were just sloppy, unprecise, unable to pass the ball. It seemed like we'd only come to Swansea all the way so we could tie up Gilfie Sigurdsson and throw him in the trunk and try and lure him back to Goodison next season. I can take Everton winning. I can take Everton losing. What I cannot stand, David, and the thing that just unmasks the whole charade of fandom is when Everton players do not try whatsoever. And do you really think they weren't trying? Yeah. I think <laughs> they could not. Uh, it, was, it, was just a, it was just a lumpen experience that did, as for a viewer at home watching, it did suddenly lift the kind of lift the curtains on football and all the passions that we project on it. And I, suddenly I was left all afternoon just numb, just like, what, what am I doing with my and life? And surely some of that responsibility, if that is true, falls on Ronald Koeman's ample shoulder. I won't have you. <laughs> J-Dubs always says, if the, the Premier League was worked out by pound for pound the head size yeah. of, uh, of the manager, yeah. Ronald Koeman would be winning the Champions League. Yeah. So I won't have a Palace would be in second. <laughs> Palace would be in second, without a doubt, Rog. Uh, OK, so in three mid-table games that will soon be forgotten by all, especially those who played in them, Leicester City beat Watford 3-0. Leicester move up to ninth, continuing to lend credence to conspiracy theorists' speculation that they took a hit on Uncle Claudio earlier this season. Burnley 2, West Brom 2. Burnley hit the magic 40-point mark and looked to be set to survive the top flight of English football for the first time since 1974-75. Bournemouth 2, Stoke 2. Both teams secure their Premier League status for another year, giving us another season of cherries and ignoring Stoke's not to be named manager. In the Championship, Rog, Bournemouth, Stoke 
and the rest of our Premier League friends will be joined by newly crowned championship title winners, Newcastle United. Remember them, Rod? I think their full name is DeAndre Yedlin's Newcastle United. Who clinched this past weekend by seeing off Barnsley 3-0. Yeah, they won on the last day. Brighton had been seven points clear with three games remaining and then failed to win any of them. A late, late Jack Grealish. Remember him? Aston Villa. Remember them? Equaliser. Halted. Brighton at the last, giving the title to Newcastle. We got Jack Coolback coming Jack back. Jack Coolback. I love Jack Coolback. Oh, we stand with gingers. Fulham, Reading, Huddersfield and Sheffield Wednesday open the playoffs this weekend. Come on, Fulham. One of those teams will win the May 29th deciding game. Be and have the rights. We'll just say, may the best team win. Come on, Huddersfield. <laughs> As I read this, the second leg of the Champions League semi-finals are kicking off, Rog. Today... Juve bring their 2-0 lead over Monaco back to Turin. And tomorrow, Atletico Madrid try and overcome a 3-0 Ronaldo-induced deficit against Real Madrid at the Vincente Calderon. Last week, the damage was done in one game by Ronaldo and his six-pack. And then the next day, it was Juventus's Higuain and his dad bod. No matter your physique, football has room for all. Welcome, friend. Yeah. Uh, In MLS, Rog... A big weekend in Philadelphia as the Union reversed the curse of Rod. Just two weeks after you travelled to Chester to interview uh, Ali Badoya, the Union won their first game in 252 days. I, t- I gave him some coaching tips. I said, kick hard, lads. Beating uh, New York Red Bulls 3-0 thanks to a CJ Sapong hat-trick. And in the Western Conference, Minnesota get another win, Rog, seeing off Sporting Kansas City 2-0. To the many pundits who wrote off Minnesota before a ball had been kicked this season, rumours of their death were greatly exaggerated. Their manager, Adrian Heath, he was a hero of mine up there with Kevin Bacon when he was a player at Everton. Adrian Heath, not Kevin Bacon. I wish Kevin Bacon played for Everton. It's such a thrill for me to see him manage over here in the US. And for those who claim the only good thing about the club is their badge, Alexi Lalas. How can you say that about a team that has one of the most beautiful jerseys in soccer with that massive nipple on the front? It's a beauty. You had a great MLS expansion idea this week, David. Yeah. You want MLS to expand into Hartford. Yeah. And resurrect. The Whalers. And to play on ice. Yeah, you said that, You said seriously. You were like, NYCFC, they play on a baseball diamond. They play on a rhombus. Yeah, MLS's Hartford Whalers could yeah. be the world's first professional football team to play on ice. Yeah. Bring, well, in, bring back Boitano. Yeah, I'm going to get Boitano. Tonya Harding's going to be part of the ownership group. It's going to be magnificent. Yeah, Torval and Dean. Get it on, gobs! Robin Cousins comes over. from. It'd be amazing. Oh. It could be phenomenal, Rog. Oh, it'd be it could ama- be really, really good. That team's home record. It's yeah, going to be a four. Ashley Wagner, fresh off the Olympics next year with that big toothy grin of hers. She can come in. And those the jerseys, group. mate. Oh, they'll be so good. They'll be excellent. Make it happen. Rob Stone will be the happiest man in football. OK, Rog, onto the babies. An injection of optimism. Even you might enjoy this one. In the US youth ranks this weekend, the US under-17 boys team finished second in the CONCACAF, CACAF, CACAF, CACAF so championships in Panama City, falling in the most English of ways. Penalties, Rog, against Mexico in the final. You had a chance to catch up with the US under-17 coach, John Hackworth, to talk about the future. Future, future. The US under-17 team just returned from the 2017 CONCACAF U-17 Championship in Panama with a five-win 
one loss record. For those who didn't see it, spoiler alert, the one loss came in agonising fashion in the final, a loss on penalties to dread rival Mexico, a team whom the US had beaten earlier in the tournament for the first time in our nation's U17 history. To discuss the tournament, the forthcoming U17 World Cup and the future of the game we love in the country that I adore, I'm delighted to have the team's manager, Mr John Hackworth, a legendary youth coach, join us on the phone from Bradenton, Florida. Welcome back, Hack. Thank you, Roger. I appreciate it. Congratulations on the tournament, beating Mexico under-17s for the first time ever and through making the final, qualifying for the under-17 World Cup later this year. But we've got to go to Sunday's final to Mexico, which you lost in the most dramatic circumstances. You were 1-0 up, going into extra time. Then in the 91st minute, you hit the post, which would have killed off the game. But Mexico went down the field. Oh, and in the most conquer-cappy way, got a free kick, slightly dodgy, but they used it in the 92nd minute to equalise at the last. The game was lost in penalties. I want to know how you feel. Do you feel rationally, like I do, it's a fantastic tournament by your team in challenging circumstances or emotionally? Is it still too soon to take on the positives? It's hard to feel that way right now, Roger. I feel gutted um, from Sunday. And uh, the rational part of me says, uh, looks at the way we played and, and our results and the fact that we're, we qualified for the World Cup. But the irrational part has that feeling that I felt, as you just described. Uh, and it's hard not to feel completely gutted by that, uh, that result that uh, happened on Sunday afternoon. What was your exact message that you gave your charges in the locker room after the final whistle? It was a sting. So I told the guys in the locker room, look, you know, this one hurts and it hurts really bad. And we probably all feel like it's undeserved, but we need to bury this one deep inside us because it'll drive us to be better. It was a tough, you know, way we should have killed that game off in a better fashion and we can learn from it. So the message was clearly, don't forget this. You know, let this one sit deep inside of you for a long time and let's improve. Let's improve in every aspect so that when we show up in India in the World Cup, you know, and we're hopefully in a, in a position to win another championship, we uh, have a different outcome next time. There were so many positives from this tournament. Talk to me about a couple of players uh, that stood out for you. Definitely the starting point, your captain, your striker, St. Louis native, Ginger Wonder, Josh Sargent. <laughs> he's a better young man than he is a soccer player, which is hard to do. But he's a phenomenal person. He is a joy to coach uh, every single day. You know, has so much ability. So uh, I was really happy that he had uh, the tournament he had. That's what we expected from him. The first goal that he scored against Mexico when we played him in the second game of the tournament. I mean, it's a world-class goal in every aspect. Um, and then he gets another in that game. So uh, really happy for him. Uh, Well-deserved, and uh, he's worked so hard for this. Just called up to the under-20 World Cup side also. Another player that caught my eye, Andrew Carlton, just 16, already a pro uh, in Atlanta. It's hard to describe Andrew because he is he has an imagination and a creativity um, for the game that is unparalleled, and it's just it's fun. 
because when he's on your team, you don't know what he's going to do sometimes. And as a coach, sometimes you want to pull your hair out when he tries it in places that are not the best places <laughs> on the field. But in other moments, uh, he does stuff uh, like his chip against Cuba. And at the time when I'm sitting on the bench, I'm like, oh, no, he did not just. And then it hits the back of the net. And I'm like, well, well done. Oh, I've got to tell you, it was a world-class goal. And hack hair, yeah. it's overrated. <laughs> what, one player I do need to hear your thoughts on, Queens, New York's Timothy Weir, son of 1995 FIFA Player of the Year, George Weir. He's currently a Paris Saint-Germain Youth Academy player. We don't get a lot of time with him. He's not with us in residency. Um, all the other players at least had spent time here in residency. Um, but Tim has been with this cycle, um, and I've been with him for the last three years. He's a fantastic young man. Uh, he's a huge talent. Scored a couple of really good goals for us in this tournament, um, and hopefully he will continue to do so. Uh, in India. You've had a vast experience with youth development at the national level, Hack. You started working with the under-17s back in 2002 and have had an on and off relationship with them. How has the calibre of the under-17 players in this current squad, how does it compare to those 15 years ago? Are we improving? If so, how? We are absolutely improving. I would just say that if you look at our current U17 team and the the world powers that we have successfully beaten and not just beaten like by a goal but by several in in a lot of cases we have players that are much more technical now we have players that have such a, a greater tactical understanding of of how to play uh it's not to say that we have arrived and it's all great but we have improved dramatically i think this pool of players this 2000 and 2001 age group is the deepest pool that the U.S. has ever produced. It's made uh, our staff's job of selection incredibly difficult. So uh, that's the way I would put it. You know, and I've long said that, hey, we're, we're getting there. We're getting better. But it is hard to really quantify. Hopefully results like this get people's attention. And, uh, and you see some of the quality that's coming out in Josh Sargent's and the Andrew Carlton's and and that should be a really good sign for fans of uh, the U.S. national team. Your team have now qualified for the Under-17 World Cup to be played in cricket hotbed, India, October <laughs> 6th to the 28th. The U.S. team, they finished fourth in 1999, led by Landon Donovan, the U.S.'s greatest product in my mind, Kyle Beckerman, and Demarcus Beasley, who, by the way, was 37 back in 1999, Hack. What, what's a realistic... <laughs> What's a realistic goal for this year's team as they head to India in your mind? What are you setting out to do? We're setting out to win the whole thing. And I know that's a very bold statement, but uh, we are going to approach the World Cup in India the same way we approach this CONCACAF tournament with the idea that you know our plan is to play in the championship. And the only reason we really set that bar that high is because we believe we have a team capable of doing it. You know, the team needs quality. It also needs character. It needs a, a group of, of people that work extremely well together. We have that with this group. So that 99 team was exceptional. I had the good fortune of being around them a little bit and then being with some of those players as they reached the full team. And uh, it's going to be hard to top what that group in, of in 99 did. But that's our goal. That's what we're going to set out to do. I'm going to ask you this. At the last five World Cup under-17 tournaments, Mexico and Nigeria, they've won two each but then kind of failed to light the world up at full international level. 
How much of an indicator of the future is under-17 play anyway? Yeah, it's difficult. It really is. Um, there's a maturation rate that is, is different for, for players over time. I would go back to the fact that the pool of players that we have to choose from right now in the under-17 team in this country is so large that that's what really uh, gives me great hope that we will produce several players. But when I look at the Josh Sargent and the Andrew Carlton's in this age group, I really think they're going to be uh, successful for many years to come. Last question for you, Hack. I mean, you're a man who's done so much in American youth soccer. You've overseen the Bradenton U.S. Soccer Under-17 Residency Program, which is about to close after 18 years, superseded by the National Youth Academy system. So the last question's a big question. If you, John Hackworth, had one magic power and could change a single thing, one thing only, that would make the biggest difference to the caliber of the American youth system and the players that it produces, what one thing would that be? Wow, that is a loaded question, Roger. But I have a simple answer for you. I would want all of the soccer that is played in this country to be played under the same rules and guidelines. College is a perfect example. High school is a perfect example. But even more so is grassroots soccer. I mean, if you go out to a soccer field on a Saturday, the way that the game is coached and played and the rules, I mean, it's archaic. You have these, you know, young young kids that they can run all day, they can do whatever, and they play for two minutes and they get subbed out and they get a little cup of whatever it is, sports drink, and then they get put back into the game and a coach tells them what to do and they come back out and it, it's not the way you learn properly. So at all of these different levels, I think we have so much going right for us that if we all just agree, hey, this is the way, this is the guideline, these are the rules we're going to play by, let the players play, I think we would be in, in a better position. Oh, let the players play. I can't think of a better ethos than that. It's terrific to speak to you, Hack. I know that emotionally you're still in agony uh, after the defeat on Sunday, but rationally watching every game of that under-17s tournament, it was it was a phenomenal achievement by the United States team. And I know I'm not alone with all my listeners in wishing you and your under-17 squad Godspeed with India fast approaching uh, courage. Thank you so much, Roger. And I appreciate the kind word. What a bloke, Dave. Yeah, what a bloke. Nothing can stop us now. Babies. By the way, it wasn't the most English way mm. to lose. Yeah, England would never have gotten to the final. No, never made it out of the group <laughs> stage against Trinidad and Tobago. Go on, lads. Your weekend looks like this, Roger. It starts Friday afternoon at 3pm with Chelsea having the chance to clinch the Premier League title at West Brom. We'll recap John Terry's for that one. full kit shinnies in celebration <laughs> at 6pm. <laughs> then Sunday at 7am, a massive relegation zone battle as Palace massive. host Hull. And at 11am, the final ever game at White Hart Lane, Spurs versus Manchester United. All of those games on, on NBCSN. Also Sunday, a triple header of MLS. It starts with Portland versus Atlanta at 4pm on ESPN. At the Whalers! Then at, at the 6 p.m. the Red Bulls <laughs> skate into... No, the Red Bulls host the Galaxy 
And it all culminates with FC Dallas hosting NYCFC on Fox Sports 1. The most ridiculous thing about that Hartford Whalers thing is I did actually pitch it to the head of marketing at Major League Soccer. Yep. It wasn't just an idle thought. You got so into it. I just <laughs> loved every second of it. Uh, okay, Rod, oh, we just mentioned the Men in Blazers television show, a half hour of TV that has roughly as many redeeming qualities <laughs> as we have hairs atop our bald heads, even though I am way less bald in person. One of the few reasons to watch, the shirtage and ties that we sport courtesy of Thomas Pink. Now, the team from German Street, London. That's somewhere between the Emirates and Stamford Bridge, Rog. Oh, it's a fire alarm. Are offering GFOPs a special deal. This is the sound effect we're giving for the Thomas Pink. Yeah, uh, just if you buy one, of our one Thomas Pink shirt, you'll get a complimentary tie. It's like buying a Christian Benteke and getting a Jonathan Benteke for nothing at all. All you have to do is use the promo code GFOP either in store or online when making your purchase and you'll be all set. A link to the offer is on our website under the Thomas Pink giveaway tab. Make sure to click on the one that says, as mentioned on pod, courage. And now turn off the fire alarm. See, I made it stop, Rog. You did, there but I can many... still smell the smoke, mate. Yeah. It's bloody hot in here now. It's a very realistic drill. There are many <laughs> other ways to connect to us. One is through our Amazon Emporium, which helps keep the show going. Anytime you go on Amazon, find it's big or small, just click off the Emporium page. Main Blazers gets a tiny percentage of the last discovery, the cost of creating the show. What do you put in the Emporium this week, Roger? A book! Oh. The Dinner Party by Joshua Ferris. Mm. First collection of short stories from this gifted young author. Of to rise again at a decent hour. Oh yeah, that was a book about dentists. I read that one. Oh yeah, it sounds like your autobiography. To rise again at a decent hour. Yeah. Ferris, he's a master of tone. He's got a deft hand with irony. It's a book full of life-changing moments, mostly for thirty-year-old males making questionable decisions, propelled by all the regulars, insecurity, self-loathing, and disappointment. The stories are humorous. They're perceptive. They are nerve-fraying. They've got lines that stay with you long after you've finished each one, like his insight into jet lag. He says it's never the hours you don't sleep, but the years that seem to have passed since you last felt awake that make it all so unbearable. Oh, so you. I've not met Ferris, but yeah. I put money. I bet that his favourite Simon and Garfunkel song is I Am A Rock, I Am An Island, and that's why I love this book so. Um, I'm looking quite tight, Roger. I don't you know are. if you've noticed. Looking I have quite noticed. tight. And Your it, nipples in Braille just say, yeah! I am, uh, I'm putting a gym into my house out in Bridgehampton, but I've ordered all the stuff, just but one. it hasn't arrived. So I left the fitness store the other day with one piece of equipment, one accessory. And I've got to say, you don't need a home gym. I've wasted all this money. You really only need this, Rog. <laughs> a shake the, weight. The, close. The perfect fitness, <laughs> perfect push-up. A a, uh, a steel at eighteen ninety nine. It pushes your shoulders, Roger. When you do the push-up, it, it sort of grinds and turns your shoulders and puts your shoulders and your, your back muscles into the perfect position as you go down to the push-up. And you know what? You can get deep in that push-up, Rog. And the secret to the great push-up is getting... you just got to get deep. I can feel, I'm clenching my back. You're opening getting my, my shoulders perception into just the best position. Uh, right as I say this. The perfect fitness, perfect push-up. If you're going to own one piece of fitness equipment... GFOPs, get these little handy buggers and whoa, your back is going to be amazing. Oh, I'm going to stick with my shape weight, David. <laughs> but you do look fantastic, mate. Visit miniblazers.com to sign up for our newsletter, which we produce with our partner, Guinness. We've got our season-ending issue going out next Friday, oh, Rog. Uh, follow us on the Twitter. The season doesn't end until we say it does. At Men in Blazers, at Embassy Davis, at Rog Bennett on Instagram, at Men in Blazers, at Embassy underscore Davis on Facebook, Men in Blazers. You can always uh, email us at meninblazers at gmail.com. You can always send your ravens to the crap part of Soho. Vendor punk, Rog. War pig!
Who wants to sex Matombo? Explosion. Balls win. Balls win. Balls lose. <gasps> Take that, Gloria. Is that your analysis? Oh, it's a tweed. Abrigado, rock on, mate. Kung Fu Fight in America. Love you, Davo. Love you, Rog. And sleep well, darling. You're not a loser. <laughs>